Hi there, House Culture listener. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed listening to other episodes in our series, please support and donate to us through the Acast Supporter feature. All donations will help us create the content that you love listening to. You can decide how much you give and there is no regular commitment. So it could be a one-off and every now and then or once every time you listen. It's really up to you. Click on the supporter link in the episode description and with Google or Apple Pay, it will take you less than 30 seconds to make your contribution. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, my name's Dave Ralph and you're listening to the House Culture Podcast. House Culture Hello everybody and welcome to a brand new episode of the House Culture Podcast with me, your host, the Managing Editor at House Culture, Matt Rouse. The summer season is definitely over and I hope we can offer you some hot topics to keep you warm over these colder days. If you're a regular listener, you know the drill. But if you are new here, I welcome you to House Culture. We are a collective of house music fans who have come together through their mutual love of the beat to celebrate the spirit of house music. Why not hit us up on Instagram at housecultureNet to connect with over 100,000 other dance floor denizens from across the globe. Also be sure to get digging through our back catalogue of podcast episodes. We've chatted to people from every corner of the industry, including superstar DJs like Paul Oakenfold, Roger Sanchez and Fatboy Slim, agenda-setting scenesters such as Pikes Hotel creative director Dawn Hindle and Strictly Rhythm co-founder Gladys Pizarro, and some of the hardest-working folks in house music such as Bongo Ben and Paul Linney. We vet all of our guests, making sure they stand up to the scrutiny of the house culture team. So even if you don't recognise the name, we guarantee that they have a fascinating story to tell, all for your listening pleasure. Next up in the hot seat is Dave Ralph, a DJ from Liverpool, who is not only one of the architects of our scene in the UK from his time playing in legendary clubs like Shelley's and Cream, he also laid the foundation for the re-emergence of dance music in America. In our chat, you'll hear how Dave started DJing on the club scene and the doors that that opened for him. That gave me the opportunity to go and check this place out called Shelley's. That was 1989, I guess. Sasha was playing. The place was pitch black with a couple of moving lights and everyone had their hands in the air. And I was just like, holy shit, what is this? I think that what Sasha had created was this cult of like people who knew. 
how his successful career gave him the launch pad to tour the world with huge artists from the electronic music scene. I got a chance to tour with BT. That's my first kind of like American debut, if you like. And when I came back home to England, Paul was the first person I rang. And I was like, mate, everywhere was packed. It's ready. So he was like, all right, let's go. And how his friendships that were forged in that early era still exist to this day. Music binds us, really. I'd still go and watch Sasha tomorrow. And I know that there'd be a moment where he'd just turn around and we'd both make this face go, <laughs> That kind of epitomises everything about what I love about music is those moments we go, fucking hell, that is wicked. Strap yourself in for a transatlantic journey. This is Dave Ralph. House Culture. Hi, Dave. Thank you so much for sitting down with us on the House Culture podcast today. Your name has been synonymous with some of the biggest brands out there in dance music. You had a hand in creating some anthematic releases. You've toured the world many times and played a major part in introducing dance music back to the US. But before we dig into any of that, we always start at the beginning on this podcast and ask, where did you grow up? And how did you first discover a love for music? I'm a Liverpool lad, so full-on scouser. <laughs> Went to school a mile away from Anfield. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Liverpool is literally in my blood. And yeah. Everton, it was right in the middle of the two of them. Uh, growing up in Liverpool, you know, I was surrounded by music. With, you know, there was a musical explosion. I grew up in the 60s, 70s. It was incredible. My dad knew some quite cool people. So I was always kind of around music, wasn't a musician, and then, you know, what really crystallised the moment and got me into what I do now was mm-hmm. really a stupid youth club disco. And we used to go to where when I was probably 15. I would, go to the, I would go to the disco and I really used to love Genesis and Tangerine Dream and Yes and Pink Floyd. Absolutely not disco music, not at all. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we would always be pressuring the DJs. Uh, their, their mobile thing was called Auntie Lucy's Elixir. <laughs> and we'd, I'd, I'd be like, all right, mate, can, we go, can you... Play, play some Genesis. Genesis at that time, like you know, it was they were pumping out quite some hit records. Yeah. But anyway, um, they would never do it. So my friend Dave Butler, who's an electronic genius at that time, still is now. Mm-hmm. Um, we decided that we were going to build our own disco. So that's what we did. Mm-hmm. We um, I built the speaker cabinets and bought some Gauss drivers and put them in there. And he soldered lots of capacitors and all sorts of things together and built a, a built a mixer. And we went and bought two Garrard SP12 turntables that you know went very speed or anything like that mm-hmm. because there was no mixing then. Mm-hmm. And we went back to the lady that ran the youth club disco and said, "Hey, you know, give us a shot. We'll do it for free and we'll be better than him." And so that's how it all, that's how my love for music started. And then I realized I could actually, excuse me, I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And we just, it just went on from there. Amazing. And what, what did that, what did that youth disco think about when you were dropping in some Tangerine Dream and some Genesis? Is that what you were playing? <laughs> no, we didn't do that. It was more like Supertramp uh-huh. and definitely some Casey and the Sunshine Band and stuff like that. But there was the old Genesis track in there. <laughs> I was, it was just strange, you know, Matt, because like I still, even then I had this sense of like, well, not everyone's going to like that. So I shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. It was quite, quite interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so that you've obviously bought these decks and you've set yourself up. You know, did, did that become? Were you getting traction and thinking, "This is I want to do this as a career"? And you're getting more gigs, or was it like a sideline? What was what was the the end game for you at that point? I think it was entertaining people. Number one, and I really mm-hmm. got off on that. That was great. And then number two, we were making some money on the side, so I was getting like you know forty quid to go, which was like a fortune. 
to go play these like you know parties because you know from that then it became it was around about the time when i was 10 and 18 so a lot of my friends were 10 and 18 you know hey come and dj at my 18th birthday party and blah 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 so you, know, you just become this kind of like you know traveling guy that's just putting speakers in the back of your car and turning up at a village hall or at a, a, a community center somewhere and then entertaining people mm-hmm. and um and, you know, from that, it was actually my dad, you know, my dad was always pushed me, you know, he always really got off on the fact that I was, I was a DJ, you know, so, oh, my, oh, David, should get our David to do it. And then I ended up in this, like, this guy was opening this new social club in Southport, which isn't too far away from Liverpool. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I became, like, long story short, I became a resident. So I stopped DJing as a mobile DJ mm-hmm. and then started kind of like a social club career, which didn't last that long because I didn't really like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the process of that, you know, I got to know a lot of people in the Liverpool kind of scene that were playing in clubs. And this was way, way, way pre-Quadrant Park. This is like years and years before that. Yeah. So there wasn't a Quadrant Park then. And it was kind of like the Continental and Snobs and all these other clubs, these kind of really mainstream clubs, which I eventually got to start working in. And that's when I kind of understood that, you know, entertaining was as much a part of DJing at that time mm-hmm. as playing the records, you know, and then also, you know, and I'll say to this day, programming is everything. You can play the right record at the right time and, you know, it could be anything and it's amazing and play the wrong record at the wrong time, you kill the room, you know? Yeah, yeah. And like a very, very good grounding in terms of putting in those hours and those miles in terms of being able to entertain a crowd read a room all of those things that you need as a as a dj you mentioned kind of social clubs and things like that what was the kind of like clubbing scene like when you were growing up i mean you know you you've already dj'd at these youth clubs and things like that i'm assuming before you're old enough to get into like proper clubs in inverted commas at at that point um what was the clubbing scene like in those early years and how did house music come into this so I was lucky enough through tenacity more than anything else to get this job in this place called Bonkers in Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Bonkers was the was the first of its kind of a fun pub. You know, so you're basically a comedian playing records. At the same time as that was happening, this was in the Dock Road in Liverpool, which was like the other end of nowhere. It really literally was. It was, you know, highly industrial area with this super cool, trendy little pub that held 150 people that, you know, you'd have a line of a mile Pete along to get in every Friday and Saturday night. It was crazy. Mm-hmm. Through, when I got a job there, I was, I, I, I kind of broke into the Liverpool club scene then. At that time in Liverpool, like, you know, DJs like Charlie C, right? He was like, he was the guy. And it was like, you know, it was fun console. Mm-hmm. There was no house music at mm-hmm. all. It was like, you know, it was like the SOS band and all, all that kind of vibe. And I, I really loved it. Um, and then I got the opportunity because of the success of Bonkers, you know, people would be like, hey, you know, come in, you want to come and do this club night and blah, blah, blah. And Bonkers would finish at 10.30 because that's when clubs closed then. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're able to go to a club, you know, and go play twice in one night, which was pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, musically, it was kind of like when I was breaking into that club scene, it was definitely the genesis of bands like Soul to Soul. That's mm-hmm. probably the most meaningful one I can think of. I had them on as a PA, paid them 50 quid to come and play a PA for me. Um, and then, um, you know, I became this kind of like um, commercial DJ, basically, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I used to play at a club. I'll get to the, I'll get to your second part of the question mm-hmm. now. So so I used to play this club in Warrington called Mr. Smith's, which held 2,000 people. Like, you know, the DJ booth came out the ceiling. It was just, you know, it was over the top, very kind of like 80s-esque. At that time, you know, stuff like Cold Cut 
and those kind of things like that it was that was that area mm-hmm. and it was like you know lisa stansfield with like a kind of pseudo house mix on it i would play these records at the same time that you know rags like the sun were like you know rave music blah 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 you know rave was just this was like 1986 87 yeah i found a love of of house music then got Eventually, around about 1988, somewhere around there, it started becoming way more prevalent. You know, there was labels like Breakout from AM Only. And um, let me think now, Fred Dove from W, I think he was in W, I think he was like the master. He would send me these Madonna acapellas. And I think he was part of that W uh, WEA mm-hmm. record pool or something. And he would send me all these like incredible things that we'd, you know, we'd be able to drop over. Anyway. I would play every Friday night at Mr. Smith's and I would constantly be getting told off playing too much house music. You know, it's like, I see places go nuts, you know, in in between playing, you know, like a Lisa Stansfield record or something yeah. like that. You know, you get this, I see, you know, or whatever. Um, I got fired eventually oh. for playing too much house music because oh. they kept on saying, we don't want that rave stuff in here. John Smith was a pretty conservative kind of guy. He was the owner. That gave me the opportunity to go and check this place out that a few people had told me about called Shelley's. Mm-hmm. And that was like the week after I got fired, I'm just going to go check it out. And that was 1989, I guess. Yeah. And um, when I walked into Shelley's, Sasha was playing. Mm-hmm. I still remember to this day what he was playing. It was it's a record by the final word. It's called Dance to the Music. It's a it's a dub version of it. It's just a drone. Mm-hmm. With this, well, it's called Dance to the Music. And everyone, it was the place was, place was pitch black with a couple of moving lights and everyone had their hands in the air. And I was just like, holy shit, what is this? <laughs> so that was like, yeah. so, so you know, I hope that kind of like gives you like that very, it, it was a few years. It didn't mm-hmm. happen overnight, but once it did happen, it yeah. was explosive, you know? Yeah, yeah. And <clears throat> excuse me, like you say, walking into a room like that and you just you get that feeling like i can remember the first like for me it was rave and whatever like the first rave i went into and just i can remember what the dj was playing when i walked in and was just like this is it for me now you know like that feeling yeah. is indelible yeah. and you know you walking in there and seeing sasha and feeling you've found like your home and your people it's it's a great feeling like were you was that immediately like right i need to get on the I need to get on the decks here. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was an absolute pest about it. You know, it was just like, it was like my single goal. So I, I, at the end of the night, I went up to the DJ booth. Uh, it was a guy called Gary McLaren in there. And I'm like, I figured him out. I'm like, okay, he's got to be the promoter. And I'm like, hi, mate, you know, excuse me. My name's Dave, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. It's a great night. I want to play. And he looked at me and he goes, who are you? And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, you know, I can do all this. This is like, you know, this is where my heart is. Mm. Anyway, it took me. I went back week after week after week, and eventually, I think they just gave me a slot to just shut me up, you know? <laughs> um, just, just give me a slot and leave me alone. I, they, they made their inquiries. They, they, knew I, they knew I wasn't like some kid just coming off the street. Anyway, mm. I ended up playing and then becoming a resident there, becoming great friends with Sasha, you know, still to this day, one of my yeah. best mates. Yeah. Um, it's where, you know, it, there was another guy there called Pigsy, P-I-D-C, Pigsy. Um, mm. He was a guy, he was a lad from Manchester, and there was another guy called Andy something. God, God, I can't remember his name. But he, he was, like, Andy would play Garage, like, literally New York Garage. It was yeah. really cool. And, you know, Pigsy would always have this kind of, like, hip hop stuff going on. It was all breaky. 
And then there was me and then Dave Seaman and Sasha. And we were the people that would play, you know, rotate around and play every week. Yeah. And it was definitely a moment in time. You know? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a very specific moment in time. And it's it, for me, Shelley's is this kind of place that I, I, I know, you know, I never made it up there, but I've got older clubbing mates who have been and they talk about it. And it's not something that you hear that often talked about. You hear more about things like cream or things like that and like you know later on and even like you know you mentioned quadrant park as well and i'm sure we'll kind of come on to that as well but you know so what what was it that made we talked to dave we've talked to dave seaman on this um on this podcast as well and talked to him about shelley's and what was your impression of the club what made that place so special at that time was it just because it was all new and underground and you'd felt like you discovered like a Mm. secret or the just the music or the vibe or what i think you know when you look around England and what else was going on around that time. Shelley's was unique because of number one, the music, because the music was very, very Italian house, right? It was really that vibe with kind of like these darker moments, you know, when you, when you, you know, you could take people on a real journey there and they just go with you, mm-hmm. you know, it didn't, it didn't matter. I think that what Sasha had created before any of us, you know, even Dave Seaman got there was this just kind of like this cult of like people who knew, mm-hmm. right? And it was all word of mouth. And, you know, you couldn't get it. I mean, it was, it, it, this place would all, the legal capacity, I think was like 900. And they used to ram 1700 people in there. So it was tight, right? And, you know, when it's that tight, there's no room anywhere. Yeah. So you can't help but like, especially with the drug culture around at the time, you can't help but like just be with your with your neighbor mm-hmm. right so then you know and all of a sudden you know you feel this vibe you're on that you know you're on this pill journey or whatever it is mm-hmm. right and you're looking at each other and the music's there and then all of a sudden it's just magical and and the music separated it from everything else like so Shelley's on a Friday night which was a uh, delight was totally different to Saturday night mm-hmm. so Saturday night was like Daz Willett and a bunch of people like that but it was all real happy hardcore it was fast mm-hmm. it was furious it was a, you know it was very speedy if you like if uh, if you want to like uh, a good description of it mm-hmm. Shelley's wasn't you know Shelley's on a Friday night wasn't like that you know there was this everyone used to do this wave like this this the, the, every, you know everyone had their hand up doing this like mm-hmm. seeing the whole it was the Shelley's wave <laughs> and then you know you'd be down um, my first few weeks there was me being on the dance floor you know off my off my nuts on mm-hmm. and just you know hugging people mm-hmm. you know in in these break in these wonderful breakdown moments and so you know i think that 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 was just what was so beautiful and unique about it and then obviously everyone who came in the in the wake of sasha kind of like you know wanted to continue mm-hmm. that um and pe- perpetuate that that feeling you know they wanted because mm-hmm. you know as the gj in there the sound system was shit it was terrible <laughs> The, the monitors were dreadful. Oh, the no. decks jumped. The, everything was just wrong about it, you know. Yeah. But it all worked, you know. Oh, incredible, incredible! And for, like, just top of mind, what is the ultimate like Shelley's track for you? What what takes you back apart from when you walked in and heard Sasha playing? That's a really good question. I think um, I think Frank the Wolf the tape oh. would be <laughs> would be would be it. That, you know, when I said to you before, there's just like all this Italian house and sort of, and then all there'd be these dark moments. Mm-hmm. It was the dark moments that really stood out to me. You know, you know those those tracks that you just be like, holy shit. There was another one called DJ by DJ Fop that just had this kind of chord progression going through it. It was like up and down and up and down. But Frank the Wolf, the tape, yeah. you know, 
for me. And, and then that was the first time I'd really got an acapella mm-hmm. to work with a record too. So I used to use this uh, track called Brass Disc and, you know, this Frank Frank the Wolf track, you know, tell the DJ to put the brass disc on and then just, yeah. it's just this mishmash of nonsense. <laughs> They're all working. Everyone just go fucking mental, <laughs> you know. So it was definitely that record. And then obviously, you know, Bass Edge as well, which is yeah. when I played there, when I played that there for the first time off cassette. I mean, you know, that was just uh, still to this day. I'm like, holy crap, I'll never forget that. <laughs> 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 well, yeah. I mean, we'll come to that just in a second. The, the Frank the Wolf, um, the tape that w- was actually on the first ever like rave tape that my brother bought and brought, my older brother gave me, and I listened to. And this was like, what the hell is this? This is nothing I've ever heard before. I just need to know more. It had that track on it as well. Um, is yeah, Great track. so I, I love it. I absolutely love it. So yeah, yeah my, my hair stood up when you said that. So uh, yeah, great. <laughs> um, yeah. So bass heads. Let's talk bass heads. So how did you get involved with that? And specifically, you know, is there anybody out there? Obviously, it's a massive anthem. Still does the damage to this day on the dance floor. Um, tell us about how that came about and, and what went on. What did you what what you put into that track? So going back to the Liverpool um, mainstream clubbing days, which was like the cross, there was a moment in time when there was a bit of a crossover. I was still like the mic out and telling people they look like shit and all that. And then, but, you know, in the same sense, I was like really focused on finding this great underground music. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'd, like I said, I got to know a lot of other DJs in Liverpool and there was definitely a, a click in the circuit at that time. It was like, you know, John Cotton, John Caccini, and then a guy called Deza, right? So Deza used to have this, uh, he would work, he was one of the residents at Atmosphere in Birkenhead, mm-hmm. Duran Duran used to do that years ago. And he had a he had a once a month Monday night called the Deaf House. For me, the Deaf House was the precursor for all that happened in Liverpool. I don't care what anyone says about the underground and this and that and the other. Like the Deaf House was there a long, long, long time before that. He had Robert Owens live. He had Soul to Soul live. He had, you know, but it was a mixture. It wasn't just house music. It was funk and soul and house. And that was what the flyer said. Mm-hmm. Got to know Desert, became great friends with him. He called me one day and he and he played me the Osmonds breakdown phone. He's like, Dave, what do you think about this? And he was like, this down, 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 down. And I was like, that's wicked. And he goes, and he goes, yeah, I'm going to make a track with it. And he goes, I said, where are you going to do that? And he goes, well, I've got this guy in Halifax called Sean Imry. He's got a studio, so I'm going to go up there and do it. And I was like, can I come? Mm-hmm. And he goes, yeah. I said, I'll drive. And he goes, okay. So we made arrangements. We went up whenever we went up, however long it was. Desiree had never heard of Sasha, mm-hmm. never heard him play. So I had a Sasha tape. So we listened to that all the way to, to Sean Imry's place. We mm-hmm. got to Sean Imry's. He lived with his mum in this kind of like, you know, real Victorian two up, two down house and was really worried about his mum kicking off about me to put the noise. Um, but, you know, and then we started kind of like Desert brought, you know, the, the Osmond stuff. We brought mm-hmm. the Pink Floyd thing. We had the African bar, Bambata thing. Mm-hmm. And so the three of us just sat there and in one afternoon we made that record. And it was pretty, it wasn't perfect. It was like, it was, it was good, but it wasn't perfect. It wasn't right. It wasn't mixed properly. Mm-hmm. And I had the tape of it. And then um, I took it back, and Des was and, and me as well come from this culture of like, don't tell anyone anything, don't you know? Cause now it's very different; it's very collaborative now, yeah. right? So, but then it was like, cover up your label, don't let anyone see it. You can't let anyone else have this record. Got to have the exclusive on it. So, so he was like, don't play this to anyone, dude. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we went, 
you know, we get to I get to the Friday after I just couldn't help myself and I play and that's and then I played it in Shelley's. I called Desi the next day and I was like, Nick, that record's fucking massive. And he goes, What did you play it out for? I can't believe you played that out. Oh no, no, it's the end of the world. Um my involvement on that record became kind of quite satellite in the end because mm-hmm. I had just other priorities. I was just really into my DJing. I didn't really want to become this music producer. Desiree had hooked up with this guy called Nick Murphy. Mm-hmm. Nick had a really nice studio in Wallasey, oh, sorry, in the, on the Wirral in Liverpool. Um, so, you know, when we all did get together, I did the, 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 the marimba bit at the end. That, that was me. Mm-hmm. I played that in. It was all like on this tiny little Atari on, onto tape. So it was like, you know, 50 takes to try and get it right because we're all on the mixing board and we're all doing this. It's like so easy to do things now, but now, but then it was really difficult. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then I kind of I, I, I kind of backed away from it. Mm-hmm. So my credit is really, you know, mixed by Ralphie. That's what it says. Mm-hmm. But I did have a, I did have a, a lot more to do with it. Than that. And I don't care. You know, I'm not, I'm not bitter about it or anything like that. It's, you know, they, they went on to make a, a really successful band out of it. I worked with them again on their album, which didn't really do all that much. But, you know, that's how I got into it. That's how as anybody out there became. And Sean Emery, sadly, you know, should be remembered because he ended up uh, committing suicide at one point, you know, I don't know when, he, um, which was really dreadfully sad. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was still, it definitely was, you know, Desert, Sean and me that, that, that made that record. I, I never ever saw Sean again after that session, actually. It was like that one time I ever saw him in my life and I never saw him again. And the next thing is, oh my God, he, he, he killed himself. And I was like, oh, that's dreadful, you know, but oh. yeah, so. Well, a fitting tribute, to be honest. It's, yeah, it's still, still, you hear it all the time, and when that piano comes in, yeah, it's just all bets are off. It's yeah. just, yeah, that's it. It's awesome. Report to the dance floor. Um, cool. I mean, so <laughs> at, at that stage as well, I, I like. I want to talk about three beat records as well, because um, like, what was your involvement there in Liverpool? For me, it was always if I was coming up, you know, I was down in London or whatever, and I'd come up and go to Cream. I would like it would be a weekend and it would be okay you'd arrive in Liverpool and I'd buy some tracks in 3B and then I'd like go back to the hotel and then I would go out and cream and then that would be it and you know come back and I was always you've got to tick that off so you know I know that you were involved in in 3B in there and like maybe over the counter over the years might have bumped into you or whatever I don't know but um so talk to me about working in a record shop during that kind of peak era of that progressive house trance kind of uh, vibe what was going on in the in the late nine mid to late nineties. Well, well, you know, record stores in general mm-hmm. at that time were the nexus for everything, right? That's where you went to get find out where the flyers were. That's where you went to get the record that you just did tongue play the night before, or you know, you found out the title of a track that someone's playing, or just to go in and kind of like hang out or whatever. So. <clears throat> I was working at Bluebird Records, which mm-hmm. Blue, Pete Waterman, you know, Pete Waterman did this roll up of like a load of record stores all around the country. He bought Eastern Block, he bought Bluebird, he bought a lot of things. I ended up working at Bluebird, got fired from there after about six months. Not not for my own fault, but that's another story. Um, and then you know, I got a call from John Barlow at Three Beats, and uh, he said, "Can you come over and talk to us?" And I was like, "Yeah, okay." So I went over and he started asking me all these questions about Bluebird, and I was like, "Mate." I was like, if you're offering me a job, I'll tell you all this stuff. But like, you know, without that, like, I don't really know. And he was like, well, we'd love you to come work here. I was like, great. Okay. So I ended up working there. At that time, 3B was really kind of like hip hop and strictly rhythm. It was really, they didn't sell any trance. They didn't sell really any progressive. There was no one there that knew that. They used to sell techno. Mm-hmm. Like um, Andy used to sell the techno in there. But, you know, 
in terms of like progressive and um, and trance music, they just really didn't stock that. So I was able to kind of like, you know, when I went to work at 3B, uh, sorry, at Bluebird, you know, um, John from Eastern Block was kind of my mentor. And he was like, look, you really like all this European, we used to call it European techno, not trance. Mm-hmm. You like all this European techno stuff. I think, you know, I like it too. So this is really like the the playbook for that. So he really taught me and gave me that a lot of insights into, you know, working behind a counter and pushing records on people and what to buy and what not to buy. Mm-hmm. So I went to 3B with all that knowledge and was able to kind of like, you know, really help the store, like improve its, 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 its sales base, basically. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing, to be quite frank and honest. I was just kind of like having a great time and selling the music that I really liked to people. Uh-huh. You know, they would come in and be like, you know, all right, mate, have you got anything new on, um, you know, uh, have you got any new virtual symmetry? Have you got this? Have you got that? You know, so, mm-hmm. you know, and then over time, you you actually start to identify the customers that are going to come in and spend. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you like, you'd slide them the record, be like, hey, there you go. But it was, it was, um, it was what was, what was interesting was every Monday, there was no internet really then. Mm-hmm. Um, so every Monday, I'd do my calls with the distributors. So, and one of those distributors was Arabesque. And Arabesque was a guy called Martin there who I used to love. And he would sell me a lot of this kind of like, you know, European stuff that, you know, no one really had. And I might buy two or three copies of them mm-hmm. or I might buy 10, you know. Anyway, one day he played me this thing down this, the phone and I was like, how many of those have you got, Martin? And I always insisted I was his first call to. I was, I was like, you got to make, you got to do me first. I buy the most stuff. I've got to be first. So he said, well, I've got... um I've got two boxes, which is like 70 records, right? So I was like, I want them all. And he goes, I can't give you more. We've got loads of other people. I was like, just like, they're not going to know. It's like, it's fine. Just give them all to me. I'll buy them. I want them all. Send them now. So we had this kind of like debate about it. And in the end, he relented. I sent one of those to Pete Tonk. Mm-hmm. And um, he played it that week. And it was seven days and one week, PB, seven days and one week. No way. And then I was the only record store in the country with that record right <laughs> so i was i was selling it for like 50 quid like a pop everyone wanted it right so i was just being absolutely absolutely gouging and that's when john barlow said to me he said what do you want to do mm. <laughs> <laughs> and i said i said what do you want so i was like i'd like my own record label i'd like this he's like that he's like i'm gonna set you up at a record label i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do that mm-hmm. so he really helped as well at that time um, and I was it, and I just signed a publishing deal, so I was able to get the studio going upstairs. So it was like this at that point in time, three beat was like a real nexus, and um, I, I, like I said, and it was a it really kind of grew as a business. And to your point about Cream, you know, then mm-hmm. it became like the record store to go to because down the road from Cream, yeah. everyone would come in the days, you know, and it would it, you you'd get the transients coming in, they they the ones that came from like first. Tony DeVitt, and mm-hmm. then you get the Oki ones coming in, you get the Sasha ones coming in, you get the, you know, it's really interesting. <laughs> yeah, and I'd imagine you have to be pretty skilled when you're behind the counter of someone coming in saying, oh, I heard Oki play his tune last night, it goes like, do 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 and you're like... Well, I mean, you know, we were real dicks about that. So, <laughs> so you know, you get like that guy that would be like, hey, there's this record that goes bum, 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 and every time, we'd just be like, hold on. And just turn the music off for the whole sh- you know the music you just turn the music off do that again mate and then we'd all look at each other and the kind of the guy would go just die laughing every time no idea sorry <laughs> excellent excellent i mean that's the kind of thing like you said you describe the record store as like the nexus 
and you'd go in there and you'd be able to tell like almost that tribalism as well between like you know someone who's into sasha or someone who's into oki all those different things and that's something yeah. do you, you know do, do you think that's missed in the modern world it, you know this uh, it's all kind of shifted online now and there's not necessarily so much as a monoculture everyone's like into like their own little niche and things like that but do you think there is a good argument for these record stores are missed these days i think Oh God, it's a really God. This we could spend five hours on this one, but like, I'll, but I won't. I think philosophically, mm. you know, where we are right now with technology and availability of music is causing music to happen a lot quicker and not last as long. That's my opinion, mm. you know, because it, it's a slow burn with a record store, right? You know, you, the distributors got the record, the record goes out, people buy it, the DJs have got the promos. The only time you're ever going to hear it is on a specialist radio show or in a nightclub, right? So all that creates this like community of like, I've got to have that record, I've got to have that record. I did it myself with Mr. Fingers, um, Can You Feel It? First house record I ever bought. I had to drive to uh, London to get it, to Groove Records in London. It was the only place I could, you know, think that may have it. I got mm-hmm. it. But that was, an, that was you know, and, and in the sense of that, I dragged, sorry, in that moment, I dragged people with me who all went to that record. It was a community around it. Now, yeah. it's kind of like, it's very kind of like, there's this new record. You've got it before anyone else. And two weeks later, it's gone, yeah. right? Two, three weeks later. There's no, there's no real longevity. And that's like, I'm not saying that, you know, the old days were better, you know, or, or any of that kind of stuff. It's mm-hmm. just really, it's just really different now. Yeah. So I think what what I see now is people taking you know a record and making it their own mm-hmm. via their own edits or or you know just just um, changing it enough so that it is theirs and they're the only person with it. That's yeah. how it, if that if that parallels makes any sense at all, yeah. right? That the the uniqueness that everyone sought as a DJ to have those like really you know incredibly rare records that no one else could have at that time mm-hmm. it turns into edits for me or you know you know sometimes people will be like hey can you get the echo power for that like i've got a great idea they don't want to remix it they just want to make their own version yeah. of it so they can yeah. totally and you know it's almost like an extension like you're saying of you playing in shelley's or using acapellas and, and doing those kinds of things as well like doing something that was completely unique to you and that someone coming to see you, you're the only person that would be playing that to them and sure. presenting that to them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm looking in the background as well. You've got loads of vinyl there already. I mean, what's your? We've spoken to <clears throat> a lot of DJs um, on this podcast over the years, and there are some that are like, I'm, I'm holding on to this with my death grip. I'm never letting go of any of this. And some are like, man, I've just been happy just to shift this out of my life because it's just been weighing me down. Um, like, where do you where, where do you stand on that scale in terms of your vinyl? So I'm in love with the music, not the media, mm-hmm. right? And the reason that I have all this is because I'm, I'm assuming one day, if I don't die anytime in the next 20 years, I will digitise all that. Mm-hmm. And, get, you know, there's certain records that I would never, ever, ever not want to be in possession of because they're, I, I affiliate them with moments in time more than anything else. Mm-hmm. And so there's a memory there. And I mean, you know, memories after after the life that I've led, memories are few and far between. So it's kind of like, you know, you look at that record, you go, oh, man, I remember dropping that. It was like <laughs> awesome. Those are the records I keep, right? Mm-hmm. I might not actually love the piece of music, but I just remember that I want the, that, that affiliation with that record. So I know there's two schools of thought. Uh, you know, people are like, you got to do a vinyl set. 
like that sounds a terrible idea to me that's just the worst idea ever i mean you know why would you want to struggle like matching two beats with <laughs> two records that could skip at any time you know yeah. and you can like you know i'm not saying you press the sync button you can be just as as creative on a cdj or whatever as you could be on even more creative uh, as you could be with a with a with a turntable and a traditional piece of vinyl mm -hmm. so you know after having DJed for over 30 years before I kind of stopped, you know, I, I've, I've sweated uh, blood, tears and snot for my art. So I feel no desire or need to go back there and start sweating again, you know, because I was intolerable. You know, people could not talk to me while I was while I was playing. Mm -hmm. You know, I just I'm like, you know, because it would all be about these long mixes. The longer, the better. Mm -hmm. oh, just got three minutes out of that one together. You know, that kind of thing. And yeah. then scrabble for the next record. It's like, no, I don't want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> I want to be able <laughs> to loop something at the end. <laughs> just take my yeah, time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I've done that loads of times now. And it's not that I, I only DJ for fun now, but, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when you can do that and you understand the equipment, it's just mind boggling and mm. it's groundbreaking and you mm -hmm. can then become really creative about it. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, I'm, they're there and they're more for soundproofing. I've got a load more in the house too. They're more there for soundproofing than anything else because it's my studio. So, you know, it's kind of, they, they make great soundproofing records. Really, really great. Not soundproofing, but, you know, they deaden the room. Yeah, almost. yeah, yeah. That's good advice, definitely. And, you know, it's a lot easier these days as well to not be like breaking your back, like taking bags of records with you and you know turn up at gigs especially if you're playing a long set or whatever or even like when you're touring and just that worry of are your records going to arrive and you know they're going to be in a good good condition when they get there all that stuff i mean yeah. if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In, ter- in terms of touring as well, you know, you have a close relationship with Paul Oakenfold and you've toured with him and the Perfecto crew. And in my mind, there's like the timeline of, you know, that Perfecto tour in the in the late 90s, early 2000s, try like almost kickstart kickstarting that dance music revolution again in the US and obviously you're a part of that I mean what what was the did you guys kind of set out to to do that and do you look back and be like hang on a sec we had a real hand in in reintroducing this sound to the states or do you think it was right timing or you know what was your sense of that tour at that time so well let's go back a wee bit Mm. right so for me, America, like I, I came to America for the first time in 1984, loved it, always wanted to live here. It was like, you know, that was my biggest bucket list thing. Mm-hmm. I got a chance to tour with BT mm-hmm. uh, as a, as my first kind of like American debut, if you like. Yeah. Um, and when I'd done that, I think it was like a 15, 20 day tour mm-hmm. with him. I supported him. And when I came back home to England, you know, Paul was the first person I ranked. And Paul had been here before with Mike Pickering. He toured on a bus mm-hmm. with Mike Pickering. And I was like, mate, it's ready. I was playing like everything that we play, you know, when we played together, I was playing all that stuff and going all over the place and there into it and everywhere was packed. It's ready. So he was like, all right, let's go. Mm-hmm. So he, you know, look, Paul is always the visionary. Like, you know, he's just got this knack of like looking at opportunity and being like, this is the time, this is the place, let's go. Mm-hmm. You know, he was the first DJ to get a residency in Vegas, mm-hmm. you know, with the Palms. He mm-hmm. invented the DJ residency in, in Las Vegas, which is now one of the, you know, the highest cherries or jewels in the crown that you can achieve yeah. as a DJ because you're paid more money than God and you get to play these incredible clubs. But he invented that. Mm-hmm. So he 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 was like, look, you know, we're not going to make any money so when we go. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get I'm going to get Jerry Girard, he was his agent at that time, to book us all over the place. But we got to work hard. So we would go and play Chicago for $500 between the two of us and pay for our own flights and hotels. Mm-hmm. And we did that like twice. Uh, and, you know, significantly, like we're, we're away for weeks. So mm-hmm. we go to like these like Kansas and, you know, Minneapolis and like all these kind of tertiary markets. Mm-hmm. Um, but the net result, of course, was that we, you know, we sold everything out. And as we sold out, Jerry Girard being the amazing agent he was at that time, would be like, well, if you want them now, it's $5,000. <laughs> and if you want them now, it's $10,000. And and so, you know, what we created then, we really did focus on it. And, you know, I thank you for recognizing that groundbreaking time because, you know, I, I feel that we did groundbreak, but I don't think we set out to groundbreak. Mm-hmm. I think we realized in the middle that this was bigger than we could have possibly imagined and that we really needed to kind of focus on the US. Yeah. And so, you know, and the thing is about the US, once you if you if the US loves you as an artist, it loves you. You know, you this is what I tell everyone these days. I'm like, look, you know, it ain't about New York, Los Angeles, Miami, and Chicago, mm-hmm. right? They're great markets, fantastic, and you know, on a global scale, you know, well recognized internationally, yada yada yada. It's really what you need to do is you need to service the tertiary markets too, because you only need to go once. You go to Kansas City once and sell out that show, those people are going to remember it mm-hmm. for like ever. Mm-hmm. And then when you go back, 
because you maybe your career is waning or whatever, and you need to go back to those tertiary markets. You're still you've still got a long, long, long way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, you're still you're still like in in great stead with all those people, and they really, really, really appreciate it. So you know, we toured extensively. Um, it was amazing. We had some great times. Yes, you're you're kind. Of, there's a wry smile there. I'm sure there's like a story. There's some crazy story you can recount here, maybe. There's loads. There's <laughs> loads of different stories, but I think that I think probably one of the best ones that I that one of my fondest memories was in being in Scottsdale, Arizona, like at seven o'clock in the morning, having not slept on a golf course, pretending to be Teletubbies, and almost getting hit with golf balls, and people shouting out, "Get off the fucking course, you fucking idiot!" No, no, it's happening, Teletubbies. Silly stuff, but like a lot of fun. You'll never look at them the same way again. Um, and like, so that tour, um, did that precipitate your then feeling of like, right, I'm just going to move out here and this is yeah. going to be it? I mean, because so, I mean, you're a resident in like the Shadow Lounge in Miami. It's like Avalon in Boston. You know, was were you, it almost seems to me like tracing your career. It's like you're popping up in these places to to create a scene there and then, okay, my job is done and then moving on elsewhere. Was that how you're looking at it? <laughs> I never thought of it like that, but yeah, sure. You know, I think um, Paul wanted me to be resident at home in London mm-hmm. with him mm-hmm. every Saturday night. And I did. I did about eight weeks with him, I think. And it just wasn't for me. I just yeah. didn't like it. I, 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 it wasn't It wasn't anything to do with him. It was just the, the club itself. I wasn't, I just didn't vibe the club. I went there a few times. It was, yeah, it was, right. it was a bit strange. I was there the opening night and it was like, it was, it was, I don't know. I, I, I get, it was just weird. It it's hard to describe. Time, yeah, it was the first time that like, you know, I'd finished DJing and I wanted to go upstairs and I couldn't get upstairs because I didn't have the right credential. And I was mm-hmm. just like, what? Like, you know, I just finished, I just finished playing. I'm just going to go upstairs and hang out. And they were like, oh, no, you've got to get this credential. How do I get that? Well, you need to speak to... I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. And, you know, it, that things like that just kind of, like, snowballed for me. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I'd started dating a girl, like, very seriously in the US. And, you know, we were having this, like, long-distance love affair thing. Mm-hmm. And so what I would end up doing would be getting on a plane on Sunday, flying to the US, being there all week, gigging, see the girl gig, and then Thursday, fly back to London. So I was back to Saturday. And this was like every week. And after about seven weeks of it, I was just like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. This is terrible. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and there was no business class for me at that time. You know, that was like, it was it was, it was was all coached. So it was, it was rough traveling, you know. Yeah. Sure, I was a lot younger and a lot easier on me. But God almighty, when I think back. So point being, you know, I, I just, I, I, it was a tough, 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 you know, call for me to go to Paul and be like, listen, it's not working out for me. Yeah. I, I hope you're not mad at me and thank you for everything here. But like, I'm going to go and I'm going to move to the States. Mm-hmm. And he goes, brilliant. You should do it. So I moved to Miami and that's, you know, that's when I became very, very serious about touring here. You know, I changed agents from Maria May and David Levy to Paul Morris to just started AM only and AM only then became like then yeah, then turned into Paradigm and now Paradigm's turned into Blossom and he's you know he's, he he was as influential an agent in the house dance music scene in the US as anybody mm-hmm. and I was lucky enough to get him as my agent but and uh, you know he was the one that really kind of elevated my career for me made sure that my fees were going up and that uh, I was getting to the right shows you know and then getting a residency at like uh, Nation in Washington was mm-hmm. just massive because that was probably at that time the best club in the country you know really really was it was just unbelievable um, 
and then you know Sunday getting a residency there these these are kind of like I can't take credit for that the only thing I can take credit for is actually going and entertaining people <laughs> I didn't do those deals Paul did those deals um so you know the like playing at Avalon constantly you know at least once a month for years was was important you know that those kind of things shadow lounge um you know Dave used to own shadow lounge is still one of my best friends today you know mm-hmm. he's like he's an amazing guy I went to live with him when I moved to Miami when I first moved to America you know it's just kind of like it, it was all quite incestuous but it was all very very cool and it was a real sense of community there too yeah yeah and what what was the what was the overriding kind of sound at that point that people were really into and was really like moving audiences at that time and what were you playing it was definitely definitely deeper yeah um very progressive you know big long breakdowns 12 minute records mm-hmm. Don't ask me to met. Oh my god! I know you're gonna ask me like, what? like what? Like I just can't. I'm blanking right now, but I'll come back and. Don't worry, it. don't worry. It was like you know, it was the it was the time when you know Tiesto had just done the silence. Mm-hmm. You know that kind of like you know these big operatic yeah. records. But when I played my residencies, I didn't play like that. You know, because mm-hmm. I wanted to play four hours. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do that. I wanted to play longer if I could. And I wanted to take people on this journey. So, you know, with Nation, I, I was able to find a DJ called Alex Whalen. who was from uh, Washington, D.C., who was like, I was like, he has to open for me on every single time I play because he knows how to do it. Because mm-hmm. he would set me up. It would be perfect. He wouldn't take it too much. And I could I could just carry on from him. And I really liked that. And that's what Paul did with me, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when Noki kind of like put his arm around me, he was able, I loved the music that I was playing. It wasn't anything like he was playing. I didn't threaten him and it set people up for this journey that he continued to take people on. You know, the art of the opener is everything, you know, to me. It's like it's an overriding theme on this podcast as well. Everyone talks about how much of a talent it is to, 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 to open properly and not step on what the, you know, the next artist is going to do or achieve and it's like just warming up it's a, it's, an, it's a real art form um so i mean you're in la right now what precipitated that move what made you think right this is where i'm going to be <laughs> this is where you know i'm sure i don't want to um I'll predict or anything here but i'm sure a scouser in la is quite rare right I mean, how how many? Um, no, there's a few. Is there a few? Of you? There's a few, but they, but everyone kind of lives in Santa Monica. Like, uh-huh. there's a big English, there's a big English contingency in Santa Monica. When I moved to America, I made a very conscious decision that I didn't want to be around English people, not for any other reason. That I just didn't want to continue the culture that I came yeah. from. I'm I'm in America now, so mm-hmm. I want to embrace that. But um, to answer your question. <clears throat> I was, I built a, I built a club in Boston called Royale. Mm-hmm. It used to be called a Roxy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, we'd, we'd run that for four years to great success. It was amazing. It was, you know, this was post me retiring, basically being a DJ and really kind of like after running Webster Hall and being at Avalon in Boston, you know, the, the, the Roxy was a project that I really got my teeth into and, you know, proved a lot of concepts that I felt were, were necessary for clubs. And that's not like, by the way, you know, house and techno. This was kind of like establishing a venue as a club, just for the pure reason of that it is a nightclub, and it's just not about who's on. It's just a great. It's just a great night, right? Yeah. So, um, we've done that for four years. It was really. It's still going right now. It's great. It was. It was great. And then I got a phone call. Well, actually, Paul Morris put me in touch with Pasquale, um, who is like Eons in uh, Insomniac, mm-hmm. and um, we talked on the phone. And then we didn't talk on the phone for quite a while. And then he he just randomly called me one day and he goes, hey, can you come to L.A. next week? 
So I was like, sure. So, you know, I got it. I got on a plane, came to LA. When I walked into the office, James Barton, I don't know if you know, mm-hmm. know that name. Yeah. He was there. And I'm like, whoa, okay. Because <laughs> um, I didn't realize that Insomniac had been bought, bought by Live Nation. Mm-hmm. And James worked for Live Nation. So yeah. just like Pasquale, John Boyle, who was the CEO of Insomniac, Simon Lamb, who was the council, and, and Pasquale, you know, so I walked into this like, okay, what's going on here? And basically they offered me a job, you know. So I was, I went back home, I talked to my wife, my wife has, she has her own career going on. I was mm-hmm. like, how do you feel about moving to LA? And we lived in New Hampshire at that time. So we lived out in the sticks. Mm-hmm. Um, and um the, the offer came through. It was a really, it was a reasonable and great offer. And she really wanted to live in somewhere warmer. Mm-hmm. So we picked up the family and we moved here. Wow. And, um, you know, that was a very bold move, but I've never been scared of bold moves. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it, it just gets a little bit more scary when you've got kids. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, you know, but we did it. We moved, and we moved to LA and I started working in Somniac and, you know, as head of talent mm-hmm. at a time when they were growing as a, as a business you know, going from like doing three or four festivals to like, you know, 30 festivals. So, you know, I was able to scale the team, change the way that things, you know, talent buying worked in many ways, work in that live nation infrastructure mm-hmm. and really kind of like change the game a little bit, which was, you know, that was, that was kind of cool. I really, I, I did enjoy my time there. It was, it was, uh, despite the fact it was super stressful, it was a lot of fun, you know, kind of like disrupting the business a little bit. It was yeah. fun. Yeah. Incredible. And, you know, I want to talk about kind of what's happening right now and, you know, what you've done this year and everything as well. And, you know, thinking about Rosala, um, everybody's free. Um, You know, it's an anthem. It's been around for nearly like three decades now. And, you know, you've had, uh, you know, tell us about how you came to remix that track or reproduce <laughs> the track or what happened there it's uh, you know it's obviously taking taking on something that's such an anthem and you know is a big part of so many people's lives in the dance music space you know what what was your thinking behind it were you frightened of doing that were you did you always think i want to do something with this tell us about that so i met rosala uh, like I had a night, I had a night in Liverpool called Bliss on a Monday night, mm-hmm. and you know I told you we, we put PA's on and stuff. So she was a PA, came in, met her, and she was quite lovely, you know, really lovely. And she played, and then she played the Shellys too. So I kind of, you know, we connected a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. I, I made sure she was okay. So we always had this thing. The lads in the record in three beats always took the piss. It was like, you know, to Dave, they had the white label that they signed. You know, to Dave, lots of love, Rosala. Thank you for my career. <laughs> <laughs> so. um so very familiar with her, obviously, and, you know, Everybody's Free was just, you know, a moment in time. A couple of years, well, right in the middle of pandemic, a friend of mine sent me over a version he'd done of it, mm-hmm. right? And I owed him a favor, right? So he said, you know, what do you think? And I'm like, yeah, it's good, you know. I said, do you want me to do a mix for you? You know, it's like I'm sitting here on my thumbs doing really nothing right now. So like, I've got loads of time and I'm making a ton of music. He goes, yeah, great. So when I sat down with it, and I listened to it. I always used to love Shades of Rhythm, mm-hmm. right? I loved Shades of Rhythm. We've talked, we've we've had, we've interviewed them for the podcast as well. Because I'm from I'm from Peterborough originally, um, and like Nick's from from Peterborough as well. So nice. it was like hometown boys. But yeah, go on. Sorry, Shades of Rhythm for me were like you know they they just always did something a little bit unique and different. Mm-hmm. You know, it was quite breaky and yeah. really ethereal. You know, this like, you know, these beautiful strings that used to put up across stuff. And, mm-hmm. and so when I um, when I 
when I sat down to kind of like, you know, rip this track apart, I was like, I want to do some, something kind of like shades of rhythm, you know, esque. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I don't think I've ever told anyone that actually, you know, so when I like, you know, when I sat down and got into it, I was like, yeah, breaks, definitely breaks, definitely some marimba, you know, definitely like a big high pitch string, mm-hmm. you know, and Rosala's voice and just like this really big deep bass. Don't need anything else, you know, to, like I want to celebrate this beautiful vocal. Uh-huh. And I also, I, I I never really ever liked that tale when it's, you know, everybody's free to feel good. I just, I, I never really liked that. So mm-hmm. I was like, I'm just going to take it out. So that's, I sat down, you know, it took me about a week, I think. Mm-hmm. Sent it over to my friends and my friend was like, yeah, this is great. You know, we're not going to do anything with this. So I was like, all right, cool. Mm. And I sent it to Tong just because I was like, hey, Pete, I just finished this. So, so I kind of like, I took this, you know, I took this position on the track of like really putting the vocal right out there mm-hmm. um, and really kind of like, you know, stripping the backing track down, but giving it like that, you know, that emotion and, and trying to recreate a moment in time, mm-hmm. give a nod to the track itself and kind of update it a little bit, mm-hmm. but not like, not, you know, not try and make this like big piano anthem, whatever, whatever, you know, I just didn't want to do that. So that was... I sent the tongue, tongue played it, and I was just like, holy crap. I sent it over to Oki. Mm-hmm. I was like, hey, along with a bunch of other music that I'd been working on, you know, that was all I did during the pandemic. I just made, I think I made about 20 records, to be honest. <laughs> I was just like, I was just in here in my element. I've never, I, I was like, you know, a starved child yeah, with a candy yeah. bar. <laughs> so he called me and he was like, Dave, this is great. We should put this out. Because mm-hmm. um, he put a track out of mine last year called Chasing Stars, and he said, this should be the follow-up. This has got to be it. Um, you know what do you want to do with it and I was like well the only way it comes out is if Rosala like is, is the original vocal mm-hmm. like I don't want to do a cover version I just yeah. don't so he was like great so you know Chris Silas from Perfecto worked diligently and really hard it was a very complicated thing to clear mm-hmm. because the BBC on the publishing oh, no, and no. you know the BBC, the BBC do not move fast man mm-hmm. you know they're very kind of like you know they're, they're stoic that's why they're the BBC and we all respect them and are very thankful for them but eventually they agreed to clear it. And and it was apparently they'd had 30 or 40 requests in that year to clear the track and they just never ever did it, but they liked my version. Oh, and so we did, we uninstalled it and that's where it all came from. Amazing, right? Awesome, awesome. What we want to do now is we'll move on to the perfect playlist, uh, the playlist choices. So this is the House Culture Perfect playlist. It's on Spotify. You can find it by searching for that. And every single one of our guests have submitted five tracks based on the five themes that we've given them. So it's a huge, huge beast of uh, of a playlist now. So And it's got loads of different things on there. Anthems, left field choices, strange things, you know, good things. Some things that I'm like, okay, maybe I don't want to put that in the playlist, but it's going to go in there because you've chosen it. <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's, it's put it on shuffle it's always throws up something really good that you'll enjoy so you've been great check that out yeah no i'll send it to you after this it's really good so the first one we always ask for is a catalyst a track that originally got you into dance music house music electronic music in any sense um what have you chosen and why did you choose that one so mr fingers can you feel it um washing machine and i touched on this you know, when we spoke earlier mm-hmm. um this was the record that uh, there was a DJ in Manchester called Stu Allen. You may be aware of. Yeah. Like, he was hugely influential in dance music and does not get the plaudits that he deserves. Yeah. Stu was like an absolute legend. 
Um, but he was part of the reason I got into dance music because I found him on Key 103 Piccadilly Radio mm-hmm. when I used to live up in North Liverpool. I could just about get a scratchy FM signal. And, you know, mm-hmm. if I stood still with my arm out long enough, I'd get, I'd, I'd get it. Anyway, he, he had these guest mixes on. And one of the mixes was the Master Jam MDs. Mm-hmm. And these guys would come in and do all this. You know, this stuff is really fresh. It's all the scratching shit, you know, it's like really cool. It was a Sunday night. I'll clearly remember it. I was driving down the road and this... He said, this is the new mix on the Master Jam MDs, and he puts it on. Mm. And all that scratching stuff was great, but what really resonated with me in the background was the track, the bed track. And I'm like, what the hell is that? It's just this, like, melodic, kind of, like, hypnotic, you know, beautiful bass line. Mm -hmm. So I was able to get in touch with Stu. I knew Stu. And... um, I asked him what it was. He goes, I don't, I have no idea, but I think it's on Tracks Records. Mm-hmm. So off I went, trekked down to London to Groove Records in London. And the crazy thing about Groove Records was that at that time, which was probably 87, 88, something like that, there was this lady who was probably 70 years old who was the house music authority <laughs> in the UK, Chicago and Detroit house. Uh-huh. So I walk into the store going, oh, I've got to get this record. Got this. And this like old ladies behind the counter. <laughs> and she's like standing there and I'm like, hi, and I did exactly what I told you. I was like, there's this record. It goes boom, 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 boom. I stood there like a right knobhead at the counter. And by the way, it was the same weekend as DMC Mixing Championship. So I had all my peers with me and my friends. Mm-hmm. We'd all pile down to Groove Records. So she was like, oh, I think it's this one. She gives it to me and I put it on. And I'm standing there with my headphones. I'm like, oh my God, this is it. This is it. I found it. So I was like, yeah, great. I'll take that. Mm-hmm. And then. All my friends were like, what is it? What is it? Put it on. So she puts it on and everyone's like, yeah, I'll take one. She's like, sorry, there's only one. <sighs> so I was the only DJ in Liverpool with that record for mm-hmm. probably six months before some more came in. And then the only place you could get it was Groove Records. Because oh, yeah. like at that time, it was like Kev Edwards at uh, Hot Wax in Newton the Willows. It was the underground. underground. Oh, no, it wasn't. Yeah, it was underground. And it, uh, in Manchester, and it was Eastern Block in Manchester. There really wasn't an underground record store in Liverpool at that time. Yeah, wow. There you go. Wow, such a story. And I love that feeling, like when you drop the needle on a record that you don't necessarily know what it is by the label, and then it starts up and you're like, holy shit, it's this one. <laughs> Amazing. Um, cool, a floor filler um, you have chosen. Some, what's a floor filler for you? Do you want me to remind you? or? Um... Yeah, remind yeah, it was Low Stepper, Your Dreams. Okay, that's a record that I actually heard on Radio 1. Even though I live in Los Angeles, I listen to Radio 1 pretty much every day. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or Radio 6, you know. Yeah. It's either Giles Pete, Craig Charles, or it's like Danny Howard and Pete Tong. And, you know, it's just BBC is just, for me, still an, an amazing institution. Anyway, mm-hmm. what is, what's been interesting lately, not lately, maybe the last couple of years, is the way Radio 1's really embraced dance music, right? I mean, it's just crazy. Mm-hmm. And, and then, obviously with that embrace comes this like explosion of like new dance music, whether it's Diplo making an house track with Paul Wolford or, or whatever. And in the middle of all that, I hear this record and it goes closer to all, which is a really old sample, mm-hmm. which I still don't know what the hell it is, but I know it's an old sample, right? Mm-hmm. I definitely know it's an old sample. So I like get into it and I'm like, Whoa, I listen to it. And I, excuse me, I find out it's low stepper and I love low stepper anyway. So I'm pretty sure he found this really old rave sample mm-hmm. and he put it on this this record. And it is an absolutely massive record. It's got like the right vocal in it. So the girls love it. They're all like, yeah. And it, it's it's banging. It's a banger. Really is. I love it. Excellent. Excellent floor for their choice. Perfect summation. Um, okay, a sunsetter. This, you mentioned this actually. Um, Kebby and Zach Fields, A New Day. Okay, so, you know, in my 
I'm still a geek. I'm mm -hmm. still a record geek. You know, like sadly, the record stores don't really exist that much anymore. But I would go and spend hours just going through boxes and checking it out and having a pile and go and listen to them. Just random shit, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, as much as I despise Spotify's algorithms because they're so weighted for whatever reason, that's another conversation. Mm -hmm. It does spit out some really interesting stuff sometimes. And so when I was putting together this Kygo show in Cabo San Lucas and I was looking for support ideas, you know, there's all sorts of little different resources that I, that I use, but one of my things spat this record out at me. I was like, Kebby, I've never even heard of this guy. Mm -hmm. And I put it on and I listened to it like, I don't know, five times one after the other i mean it's just perfect it's so so well paced mm -hmm. it's beautiful it's everything i used to love and still do love about you know dance music in general because it's got emotion mm -hmm. and it just feels like you know sunset that record coming on i would probably cry <laughs> <laughs> It's all about the context. Yeah, no, it's, it's incredible. I wasn't familiar with it either. And when you sent it over, I had to listen to it and was like, wow, this is just washing over me. It's lovely. It's beautiful, right? Yeah, yeah, really good. So different. It's like mm. really weird. He's from Canada. I looked mm -hmm. into him. He's from Canada. He's not really made that many records. He doesn't have that many followers and all that kind of stuff. And that that's what I that that's what I hate about Spotify because it's all a, it's a popularity contest yeah. versus like a great music contest. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm glad that I was able to find him and, yeah. you know, hopefully brought him to, you know, I've put him on a few mixes that I've done and I've like told people about him. So hopefully, you know, we'll get him some more listeners. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Check out Kebby if, uh, if you haven't already, it's amazing. Um, and yeah, so a tearjerker. So I don't know if you're familiar with Ryan X, but he's got the voice of like, uh, he's got the voice of an angel. Um, he's managed by a really, really good friend of mine called Steve Satisfy from uh, Red Light Management. I, um, I discovered Ryan X on another kind of like Spotify mission one day. Actually, no, I didn't. That's not true. Jason Bentley, who used to have the morning is eclectic show in Los Angeles, who was probably one of the best radio shows in America because American radio is super bland. Mm -hmm. Um, he, he, you know, he played a Rye X track and I was like, wow, that sounds really good. Got into Rye X. Had no idea that my friend managed him. I, he and I will go backwards and forwards now and again. And I'll, you know, I'll say to him, hey, if you had this guy, you should like look into him. He's really good. So I sent Steve. I was like, hey, you know this guy, Rye X? He goes, Dave, I fucking manage him. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. But, you know, so Rye's got like a very special place in my heart because he's a close friend. Uh, who manages him but you know right in the middle of the pandemic when everything was closed i got a call from steve and he goes hey uh rise playing at the henry miller library in big Sur in california which is northern california mm -hmm. i can't get you any free tickets but it's only for 150 people socially distanced you gotta wear a mask all the time you know if you want to go i can you know i'll make sure that you get a ticket because it'll sell out so that was my that, that's why rise is so important for me because it gave my wife and i a chance to escape for a weekend and we drove up to San Francisco like right in the height of the pandemic when there was nothing on the roads. It was really like crazy. And we sat there and we listened to Rye play for two hours with just him and uh, another guy on keyboards playing live. Oceans, if you listen to it, the, the lyrics are just all incredibly emotive, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, I, um, I think, uh, uh, it's good. I'm like I've been bleeding oceans. Like, and when you listen to the context of that, that that he sings that in, it's just incredible. And he and he hooked up with this guy. I can't remember his 
German producer's name to with this backing track. So the the you know the the the, the meeting point for the two of them was this beautiful music with rise with rise voice. Uh, you know, for me, it still makes me like, arms on my hair, hairs on my arm pop. You know, big time. Yeah, yeah. All right. So um, a last tune. The crowd are crying out for one more, and you stick on Frankie Wah come together. Why have you chosen that? So you know that felt to me like the nearest thing I've heard to a, on a, in a modern record to like you know, nineteen ninety one, end of the night mm-hmm. kind of like it's just got it all right. It's yeah. got it's it's break and you know Frankie's great because he's 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 making all these great records, which is just slightly off center from a lot of other people. Mm-hmm. You know, him and Dusky have kind of gone down this real break line, but I do think that he's got the edge because he he comes up with more anthemic stuff than they do. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, just the emotion of that, like, you know, people come together, like thinking about like where we are mm-hmm. as in, you know, in society right now with everything that's going on all over the world, division, you know, polarization, all that, you know, this just this, the message in that song for me, you know, people come together is really great. You know, you put it with that beautiful piano he's got going on mm-hmm. and it's just like, just feels like, you know, that's the one more record, you know, when people, you know, you like, boom, you turn the music off and people go, come on, one more, that's the record you play. And I actually did it. In um, you know, I told you I don't play out that live. It's, it's like it's it's rarer than anything else now. But mm. you know, a few weeks, a few months ago, I played in Cancun on this like in this little party in Cancun, which was awesome. It was a daytime party, mm-hmm. and that was it. You know, when when I actually finished, and people were like, you know, oh, come on, play one more, and I was like, all right, that's it, and I, and I did play it, which is why I chose it because <laughs> it's a great. That's the end of the that's the end of the journey record. A positive message. Cool, cool. All right. And so we always wrap up with the final question after the last tune, which is um, we are obviously house culture. You're on the house culture podcast. And from what we've heard, you know, and people who know you, you've added so much to the scene and part of the fabric of the scene. You know, when you take stock in terms of what you've achieved in your career and look back and what the the culture of the scene has given you in your life, um, how how do you kind of square it all in your head and how does it make you feel? I think I feel lucky that I was able to follow a career path that satisfied me in many ways, really kind of like piqued my curiosity in many ways. And I was able, and I've been able to put food on the table like every week. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel lucky about that for Mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like there's still a lot more to do. Um, I don't know what that is, (laughs) but I'm certainly, I'm certainly still driven. I, I don't think I've, you know, when I say driven, I definitely don't have the energy that I used to have, but I'm certainly still driven. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having been doing this for as long as I have, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super thankful for the people that I've met that I can call friends, mm-hmm. you know, because we all, the music brought, it sounds really sycophantic, but it's absolutely true. You know, music brought us all together. Mm-hmm. And music binds us really. Like, I'd still go and watch Sasha tomorrow. And and sit, you know, probably wouldn't be on a dance floor now, but I'd certainly be sitting close to him, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I know that there'd be a moment where he'd just turn around and we'd both make this face go, <laughs> <laughs> and that, you know, that kind of epitomizes everything about like, you know, what I love about music is those moments we go, fucking hell, that is wicked, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure you've done it too, Matt, right? It's just like, wow. Yeah. yeah. You know, it's just, you know, and you know it's coming. You know, you know it's coming. Like, you just look around and you see it, and you go, "Whoa!" So all that, you know, I definitely feel a lot of gratitude and thanks. And um, you know, hopefully, 
the next 10 years will be as interesting and as like diverse as the last 10 years. And then I think I just want to go sit on an island after that. <laughs> Why not? Why not? No, that's a brilliant final summation and a brilliant final thought to, to end on. No, So thank you so much. That's been really interesting and love chatting to you, Dave. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for the time. Really appreciated it. House Culture. I hope you enjoyed that one. I love that chat. What an interesting journey he's had. Shelley's cream home in London, all of his hard work in the States. I'd like to thank him again for taking part and I hope he makes it to that island. As you might have guessed as well, this interview was recorded before the sad death of the legendary DJ Stu Allen. So big respect to Dave for recognising that man's talents and contribution to our scene. If you want to hear the kind of sounds that Dave is putting out right now, you can of course hear his most excellent remix of Rosala's Everybody's Free on Spotify, as well as his own recently released original material. His latest single is a dreamy downbeat journey called Awake Again, and I highly recommend you checking that out as well. And whilst we're talking about tracks old and new, you can find our House Culture Perfect playlist on Spotify that features all of the choices from our previous podcast participants, standing proudly alongside Dave's editions as well. Can You Feel It by Mr Fingers is already in the list as it was Roger Sanchez's submission, so I've put in the B-side washing machine, as Dave did mention that one as well. I've also thrown in Dave's ultimate Shelley's tune, The Tape by Frank DeWolf, just because... As you heard, that track means a lot to me as well. Once you've got that playlist cranked up, please do all of the other good stuff to help support this podcast. Loving, liking, tweeting, sharing. You can even leave us a nice review. We love to hear your feedback and all kind words will be paid back with a shout out on a future episode. This time around, I want to say a big hi to Adam George, who got in touch on Instagram to say that he loved our episode with Roger Sanchez and, as another chance is one of his all-time favourites, it was great to hear Roger talk about it in depth. Thanks, Adam. Glad to hear you enjoyed it and I hope you like this one as well. If you're one of those people that struggle between episode releases, make sure you keep abreast of everything else we do as House Culture by following our Instagram feed at HouseCultureNet or the hashtag TrueHouseCulture. Finally, if you want to get in touch with me directly, you can also find me on Instagram at DJMattRouse. Thanks for listening, rave safe, and see you next time. House Culture. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns.